Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father, we give you thanks for the faith and love for the saints that you have given to the brothers and sisters in this room. We pray that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know you now. Pray that you would be with us as we speak your word, that you would be with my mouth, that it would speak your word in our ears, that we would hear it, and that you would come and change our lives and that we would know God better. We would know Christ better. There is no greater thing. This is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since Jim is with us, I figured I would honor him by telling you a story that includes him. So uh, some years back, he and I and some other folks decided to go whitewater rafting. Uh, I was in undergrad, I think Sajan was there as well, and we went whitewater rafting. Now, you need to know that I didn't grow up with a pool. I didn't uh, grow up playing near water or water sports. or I don't know how to swim. I don't know what it is about Indians, but Indians didn't know how to swim. When we met an Indian that knew how to swim, it was like meeting a unicorn, like, <laughs> like, really, you exist? I've heard of you, but I didn't know. Can I show you to my friends? And, and that's how it was. So we didn't know anything about water. We didn't know how to swim. I have no business being in the water. That being my background, we decided to go whitewater rafting, okay? And at the start of this whole thing, they put a life vest on us, and they gave us a bunch of instructions. And I don't remember all the instructions, but I do remember they said over and over and over again this one thing. They told us, when you fall out of the raft, don't panic, and whatever you do, whatever you do, don't try and walk in the water. You're not going to catch up by walking You've got this massive life vest on. All you need to do is sort of float. Just assume a hot dog position and you'll be fine. Okay, so I heard that and we went white water rafting. The raft tips over or they let us out. I forget what it was, but we're all in the water. And for a few seconds, I'm lying there and I'm going, this is great. I don't know why Indians don't do this. This is wonderful, right? (laughs) And then I look and downstream now like four football fields is the raft and everybody else. And I am stranded now 500 yards back. And I don't know how that happened, but they're all down there. And suddenly, what do I do? I panic. And then what's the very next thing I do? I start walking as fast as I can, trying to catch up. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. This is why Indians don't go in the water. And then I'm thinking to myself, I don't have the tools. Is this thing even working? Do I have the tools? Have I been equipped for doing this? I'm not going to make this happen. And then as I'm sitting there in my panic, suddenly I hear splashing near me, and there's one other person left behind as well, and that is Jim, right? (laughs) And you talk about not walking. Brother is marathon, sprinting (laughs) to the front, right? And so somehow I make my way over to him, and then this is sort of confession time. This is church, so I can tell you. Somehow he started to make some progress, so he was starting to float, and I didn't do this on purpose. Instinctively, I grabbed him, and I almost pulled him under, because in my mind, I was thinking, if I'm dying, I am not meeting Jesus alone today. We are going to Jesus together, right? Needless to say, we were rescued um, by a girl. (laughs) And, And the embarrassing thing isn't that it was a girl, it was that she was 90 pounds, soaking wet, And she was grabbing these two behemoth tugboats and bringing us back to the the thing. The, The worst part of the whole thing is this. 
I mentioned we were given these life vests. I mean, these were military-grade life vests. They could have made concrete float. We could have been made of lead, and we would have been fine. We had everything that we needed, all the resources to get this thing done, but I forgot all about that. In the middle of my panic, when I saw the water splashing my face and these folks downstream, all I could think was, I'm not going to make it. This thing isn't going to work. I don't have what I need to get this done. Now, I say all that to say this. I can almost bet that so many of us feel that same thing when we think about the Christian life. Now, here, here's what I mean by that. When you become a Christian, you turn from your life of sin and who you once were to Christ. You repent of your former life, and now you've got Christ ahead of you. And the scriptures give you this vision of what life is supposed to look like now, what floating downstream is supposed to mean for you. Here's what the, the, the path is supposed to be for you. And it's this glorious vision of what the Christian life is supposed to be. Just so that you get a flavor of it, let me give you some verses. 1 Peter 1, verse 14, it says this. This is how it describes the Christian life. As obedient children, right, that's who we were. We once were enemies and slaves, but now we're not. We've been adopted. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? So I had my old life, but now I'm a child of God. You children are not to act in your former ignorance. You are to be, what? Holy. That word that describes God, that is that he's other, he's different, he's perfect. And the father's saying, I'm that way, you're my children, you're to be that way. Or then we wonder, what is God's will for us now that we're believers, Christians, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this, For this is the will of God. What's the will? Your sanctification. What's God's will for your life? It's that process by which you become more and more like Christ. What does God want out of your life? It's that the old Ajay is dying more and more, and I am becoming more and more like Christ. This is the will of God, your sanctification, and he spells it out in one area of life, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So you're becoming more like Christ in every area of your life, including how you relate sexually, that you're not burning with lust like the people who don't know God. There's something distinct and different about you. That's the vision for the stream ahead. Or then Jesus puts it very plainly, very flatly for us. In Matthew 5, at the very end, in verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? It doesn't get much simpler than that. Here it is. Do you want to know what your Christian life is supposed to be? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. With that sort of vision for life and those instructions, the Bible almost says, all right, now go ahead, and sends you on this raft down life. And here's the thing. The Bible's telling you, don't worry, you're not alone as you do this. And the scriptures are even going to say, you have everything that you need to get this done. Right? Second Peter will say, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. You have all the resources, all the power, all the tools you need for this task you have. But here's what happens. When you get downstream, and the water is now in your face, and now you're looking, and maybe you see that there's some super Christians that are 400 yards away, and you're not sure how they're making it look easy, and you're not sure how they got there and why you're stuck here, but you know, man, no matter how hard I seem to be running, I'm stuck. 
I can't seem to get ahead. No matter how many marathons I'm doing, I'm not seeming to make progress. I'm stuck in the same place. Is this thing really going to work? Am I going to make it? Do I have the tools that I need? Have I been given the resources that I need to make this happen? Now, Seven Mile Road, fortunately, we are not the first Christians to struggle with this, to wonder about that. We're not the first ones to wrestle with this big word called sanctification, right? Thankfully, I'm not who I was, but I am not yet who I will be, so how do I get from here to there? And fortunately for us, we're not the first ones to ask that, and in the passage that we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul writes to a young baby church like ours as he writes the letter to the Ephesians. And in the first chapter, he's going to write about some of the same things we're talking about, and he's writing so that they would know that they have everything they need to live the godly life. They have been given all the resources and power that they need to live this thing out. That's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the passage that Mike read for us. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Ephesians 1, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23. But so that you're not just thrown into the middle of Ephesians, let me just give you some background on where we are. We're going to start at 15, but here's what happens before that. Paul, in chapter 1, starts with just a sort of standard greeting. This is Paul, an apostle of God by the will of God, and and he's writing to the Ephesians. And then in verses 3 to 14, that chunk that's right before our section, Paul starts praising God for all the things that God has done for the church. So hear this. Paul starts thinking about all the things that God has done for this baby church, and Paul just starts speaking and can't stop. In fact, in the original language, we see it in our Bibles as verses 3, 4, 5, all the way to 14. In the original language, you need to know this, it's just one long sentence. Paul's not dumb, he's very bright, but when he's talking about what God has done, he sort of throws grammar out the window, and he starts talking, and he's got no periods, no commas, no colons, he just keeps on going. And so 3 through 14 is one long, run-on sentence. When he starts talking about, here's what God the Father did, he adopted us and predestined us in love before the foundation of the world. Here's what God the Son did. He redeemed us and shed his blood for our trespasses and the forgiveness of our sins. Here's what God the Holy Spirit does. He seals himself. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit as we wait for the inheritance we have in glory. And as he thinks about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and how each member of the Trinity is at work in your salvation. He just keeps talking and talking without taking a breath. No stops, no periods, just one long run-on sentence. Then he gets to verse 15, and he sort of transitions. In verses 3 through 14, he's praising God for what God has done for us. And in verse 15, he transitions to praying to God for us, right? In verses 3 through 14, he is praising the Lord for what God has done. The Father's redeemed us. The Son, the Father has adopted us. The Son has redeemed us. The Spirit has sealed us. And now in verse 15, he begins to pray for the Ephesians. So in 15, he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So here's what he's saying. Ephesians, as I think of all the things that God has done for you, and I think of the fact that you do have a faith in the Lord Jesus and love for other Christians, I do not stop thanking God and praying for you. 
And, and listen, Seven Mile Road, if, if he were here, Paul would say the same thing to us. He'd say, Seven Mile Road, since I have heard of your faith and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give God thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I'm praying for you all the time. Now the question is, what is Paul praying for this church? And what would Paul be praying for us? As he's saying, look, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you all the time. Here's what I'm praying. Verse 17. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now that's a lot of words. But if I were to boil it down, here's what he's saying. Ephesians or Young Church or Seven Mile Road. Since I've heard of your faith and your love for other Christians, and I know this is real, I have not stopped praying that you would know God. That's essentially what he's saying. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You'd be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying, I'm praying that you would know God. Right? Young church, here's the thing I'm constantly asking God for you. I'm asking that you would know him. Now, here's what strikes me about that. There's all kinds of things Paul would be, could be praying for the Ephesians. Right? There's all kinds of things he could be praying for them. In fact, if you read back about the Ephesian church or about Ephesus, you'd find out that Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. In fact, when Paul first showed up in Ephesus, he found that there were gods and idols all over the place. The entire city was littered with temples to false gods. In fact, when he showed up and preached the gospel, a riot broke out. It was not easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. And yet here's what strikes me. Paul says there's one thing that you need that I'm really praying for. And Paul doesn't pray for a change in their circumstance. He prays that you would know God. Right there, where you are. Right, there's a ton of things he could pray for. And yet he's convinced that the greatest need that you have is to know God right where you are. Right, some of us need to hear that this morning. Because some of us would say, no, no, my greatest need is if I, could, if I could just be married. Or if I could just get out of this marriage. Or others would go, no, what I really need in life right now is if I could just get this job. Or if I could just get out of this job. Right? For a bunch of us, there's all kinds of things that we're convinced we need. If I could just get this or that, and Paul says, no, 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 here's your greatest need and what I'm praying for you. I'm constantly asking God that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and open the eyes of your hearts so that you would know God. That you would know him right there as you're going through that. Your greatest single need is to know God there. And, and let's not forget who Paul's talking to, right? Because this is the other thing that strikes me. Who is Paul saying, you really need to know God? He's saying that to Christians. 
He's saying that to you. He's saying that to believers. This is not a passage where he's evangelizing lost people or unbelievers or non-Christians. He's not saying, I'm praying that you really need to know God because that's what you need. He's saying to you, Christians, you're not done. Your single greatest need now, whether you're five days old in, in faith or whether you're 50 years old in faith, is to know God. That's what I'm praying for you, Christian, that you would know God. I mean, I think that lays for us a path ahead of us to say, we're not done. Because when I think of this, I am almost struck by saying, you know, we know God. And Paul's saying, no, you have more of him to know. We have the Spirit. No, you have to get the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the ministry of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him more. We've received revelation, but you need to have more revealed to you about God. Your single greatest need, Christian, is to know God right where you are, right? And almost to prevent us from straying into thinking that this is some kind of academic head knowledge. Do you notice in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's his way of saying, I'm not saying you need to know him more here. I'm saying you've got to know him in here. Right? You've got to know him with the eyes of your heart, enlightened to know him. This is not, I need you to cram more Bible facts into your brain. This is, you need to know him in here. Right? This is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And he's saying, Christian, you need to know God. Right? Like, if you were a fan, I was a fan of Michael Jordan when I was young. If I was a fan of Michael Jordan, I, I knew every stat, everything about him, the whole thing. If I met Michael Jordan, I knew a lot about him. I don't know Michael Jordan. If he shook my hand, I'd say, hello. And then if he said, how are you? I'd say, hello, right? Because I don't know the man. And God's saying, I'm not asking you to cram more here. I'm asking that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened with a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you would know. Meaning, when you're in the car and no one's there and it's just you and him, do you know him there? When you're at the office desk and there's no one there and it's just you and him, do you know him? L like in the way that prayer isn't this awkward, clumsy thing because you're not sure how to relate to him. You know him, but do you know him? Do you know him so that when you talk to him, it's like someone you know? Christian, your greatest need is to know him. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know God. And Paul here then goes on to say three specific things that he's hoping you would know as you come to know God. As you grow in this relationship of knowing God, here's three specific things. And the first two he says very quickly, so we'll do the same. We'll just run through them. And the third one is sort of where he lands, and we'll do the same. Here's the first thing he's praying. First, verse 18, I'm praying that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Christian, I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Christian, as you're floating downstream and, and you don't know if you've been given what you need, I want you to hear God wants you to know, to know the hope to which he has called you. Right? Being a Christian is hard. And what Paul's saying is, even if the circumstances don't change, I'm praying that your heart would know the hope to which you have been called. Right? What's that hope? I don't know that I could say it better than Jim said here. What's the hope? 
It's the hope that when I look at this world that is broken and disordered and nothing works the way that it should, and the, the innocent get trampled on and the wicked rule, when this world where everything is upside down and backwards and inwards, in that world, what's the hope? The hope that I'm looking forward to is he's going to make all things right. He's going he's to undo this crooked world. There is going to be a judge who will rule rightly and clean up the streets. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, everything will be right. It's the hope to which you've been called. What's this hope? It's the, the whole package of your faith. The hope that you have. It's the hope that comes with what he said already in verses 3 through 14. The hope that comes with being adopted by the Father. Redeemed by the Son. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Christian, is there any hope that comes with that? Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know that, that hope, the, the hope that when sorrows come and difficulty come and circumstances don't change, that hope that holds you in that moment and says, I know God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. When loneliness comes and it doesn't seem like you have a friend or ally anywhere, that hope that holds you there and says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When sickness comes and death comes, that hope that holds you in that hour to say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? That hope. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know the hope to which you have been called. Second, he says this, I'm praying, that the next part of verse 18, I'm praying that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Right? I'm praying that you would know the hope to which you've been called. And second, I'm praying that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when you read this the first time, you're almost guaranteed to miss what he's saying. Because it sounds like what he's saying is, okay, I'm praying that you would know what are the inheritance of the saints. So you almost read this and go, okay, what Paul wants us to really know as we're floating downstream and we're not sure if we can make it, is all the stuff that's laid up for us. What's the inheritance of the saints? But that's not what he's saying. Because notice again, what does he say? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Whose inheritance is he talking about? His. He's talking about God's inheritance. And so what Paul wants you to see is this. Do you know what God's inheritance is? It's the saints. I think if we get that, that has the ability to almost send goosebumps through our spiritual soul. Do you know what God's inheritance is? It's you. It's me. It's us. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know what your status is. Do you know who you are? You are the inheritance that God is waiting for. You know how a person waits for an inheritance to inherit this great empire? God is that way about you. That from eternity past, God has been waiting, pining, working to inherit you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You know when you struggle to go, what do you get the guy who has everything? You have a well-off friend. You're not sure what to get. What can I get him that he doesn't already have? Right? I got to go sentimental. Somehow get him something that he's going to finally go, oh, I've always wanted this. But what do you get the guy who has everything? What do you get the God who has everything? 
you. You're what he's wanted. Do you know that from eternity past, in chapter 1, in verses 3 through 14, he says, God the Father predestined us in love for adoption. That means that he set his affection on you from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says. You hear love songs on the radio about a guy who's going to love a girl to the highest mountain and to the ends of the sea. That's just lines. But when the Father looks at you and says, I have loved you before time began, that's not a line. When he says, I have loved you for all eternity, when he says, I had set my affection on you before you were, not just before you were as in before mom and dad, before mom and dad, before grandparents, before the world, before I hung stars in the sky, before I fastened the mountains to the ground floor, before I hung the clouds in the air, I had set my affection on you. And I have been working from eternity past, planning all things, even including the slaughter of my own son, Shedding his blood, rising again, sending the Spirit, so that one day I might inherit you. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. That this is where all things are moving towards. And oh, what the riches will be ours when we are finally his. Oh, the riches we will have when he finally has us. Hear me, Seven Marud. You and I live our lives trying to find worth in a thousand places. I'm a preacher, so this sermon has to go well so that you think well of me so that I feel like I'm worth something. You go to jobs and work, and you got to knock it out of the park so that five people know you're awesome. You're a student. you got to get straight A's so that you get letters after your name so that everyone will know you're worth something. You're a parent. you got to get your kids to behave, not just for their sake, so that five people will see their behavior and know that you're a good parent and that you're worth something. And you and I chase worth in a thousand different places. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know what your status is, secured in God, that God is sitting in heaven going, I can't wait to have them. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So I'm praying that you would know what is the hope to which you've been called and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And third and lastly, I'm praying that you would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? I'm praying that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul's saying, When you're swimming and you're drowning and you're not sure if this thing is going to work or if you've been given the resources you need to make this, I'm praying you would know that you have power. Every one of us who belongs to Jesus, hear me, you have been given power. You have everything you need to live out this godly Christian life because you have been given power. And it's not just power. In fact, Paul needs you to get this so he can't just give you half a verse like in 18. He's got to unpack this so that you really understand this. When he says you have power, he needs to add more words so that you really get what it means to say you have been given power. So hear what he says, 19 and following. 
you have been given, I'm praying that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Here's what Paul's saying. I need you to know, I'm praying that you would know that you've got power. But, but it's not just power, it's immeasurable power. But it's not just immeasurable power, it's the immeasurable greatness of his power. But it's not just the immeasurable greatness of his power, it's the immeasurable greatness of his power which is according to the working of his might. But not just according to his might, according to the working of his great might. You see, here's what Paul's doing. He is piling up every synonym he can think of with power. It's like Paul grabs a thesaurus, looks up power, and just starts writing every word he can find. He uses words in this passage that are not used in any other part of the Bible. Because he's got to pull out every word and synonym he can come up with and think of to get you to understand what he means by power. Not just power, courageous power. Not just power, dynamite power. Immeasurable power. Exceeding power. That's the kind of power that God has given towards us. Now, words aren't enough. Synonyms won't do. Four or five words won't do. And so Paul begins to give you an example of what this power is able to accomplish. Right? It's, it's not just enough for him to give you a bunch of adjectives. He wants you to see what happens when this power goes to work so that you'd know what kind of power you have. Well, he tells us it's the power, 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Samaro, do you know what kind of power is at work towards us who believe? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power. Let me give you what I know is the dumbest example in the world, and I know it's dumb, so I'm, I'm warning you in advance. This week, I'm, I have this verse floating in my brain, and I'm thinking of the power of God in raising Jesus from the dead, and we're in the backyard, and Shainu and me and the kids are there, and there's this tree stump that's been lying there from last winter on, or last summer on, and so we lift this thing up, and what happens if this thing has been lying there all winter, all summer, all spring, it's like the Amazon just released underneath from there, right? I'm surprised an elephant didn't come out. Every kind of creeping, crawling thing. And so the kids are screaming and China's screaming and, and don't judge us. They said, kill it, kill it. So we start stomping on everything, killing everything. Shainu, because she is ghetto or watched the Discovery Channel, goes inside, grabs salt, and starts pouring it on the worms. I didn't know that. It dries out the worms. So now it's like this snowy battlefield and there's this massacre that's taken place, and all these dead bodies are lying there, right? So I'm, I'm looking at this one dead worm, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what would it take for us to just make that thing crawl again? Like if my whole family gathered around that massacre and said, live, right? Maybe if we shouted at the top of our lungs, we could maybe... Oh, if we got the whole church involved, just, I mean, it's not a big thing. It's just an earthworm. It's that big. How many cells could it possibly have? What, what, what kind of power would it take to just make that? Th so what if we all got together? Or what if we said, you know what? We, we can amass all the resources of this known world. Every dollar, every bit of intelligence and technology. 
Do you know we, the whole world, couldn't make an earthworm crawl again? What kind of power needs to come to take the dead corpse of Jesus three days in the grave and make life beat in that body again? What kind of beyond-this-world power needs to come and make the Son of God resurrect in the flesh? You see that I have flesh and bone. That body resurrected to new life. That power is at work in you. And it's not just resurrection power because he can't stop, right? Paul's on a run. The power that raised Christ from the dead, and then he goes on to say, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place. So it's, it's not even just the power that got him out of the grave. It's the power that raised him from the grave and kept on raising him all the way to the right hand of heaven. And as he was raising him, it's the power that raised him from the grave up and up over verse 21 and 22, over every other power and authority and dominion. So it's the same words used in chapter 6 about the enemy and the devil and his empire over every other authority in the world, in the cosmic world, among Satan, among sin. He kept raising this Christ over and above them all and not just exalting power, not just resurrecting power and gave him the name which is over every other name in this age and in the age to come and kept raising him till he raised him so high that he put all things under his feet. Jesus had to look down to see anything else. That's how far and high God raised Jesus from the grave and made him the head of the church. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power that is at work in you. The power that raised him from the dead and raised him to the highest place and gave him the name over every name in this age and in the age to come and seated him above every other power and dominion authority. That is the power friends that's at work in you so that Ephesians 3 two chapters later Paul will say now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us do you see that to him who is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us what power resurrection power Seven Mile Road, Paul is praying that you would know what is the immeasurable power that God is working towards you. That's the power that you have. I heard a sermon from a brother, a preacher in Boston named Jeremiah, and he said some helpful things that I want to end with. Because the reality is this. You hear all that, and it's almost like there's two parts of you. 50% of you goes, that's awesome. How are we all not screaming like Dennis right now? We've got resurrection power, seated in the highest place, power in us. And then there's 50% of you that goes, but Tuesday morning's coming. Thursday night's coming. And I've got resurrection power then? Really? Because... Because by Wednesday, I'm going to be talking with my wife, and we're going to get back into that argument that we always trip up in, and it's never gone well. And then and there, resurrection power. Thursday night, I'm going to have fought for purity all week, but Thursday night, I'm going to be driving home, and there's going to be a computer there, and no one's going to be there. And, and it's like I'm already entering the tunnel, and no signals are coming in, and I know I'm not going to stop until I watch something I shouldn't. There's resurrection power there. Then, 
Because there's part of us that wants to go, I want to believe this. But Wednesday morning's coming. Thursday night's coming. Let me give you an illustration that I found helpful. The Ringley Brothers Circus is, is in some trouble because of how they deal with their elephants. And here's what the story is. Supposedly, you've got these massive 12,000-pound elephants in their shows. How is it that they're not running around killing everybody? The way is... When they're babies, what's, what happens is that these baby elephants, what they do is they take this two-foot stake and they drive it into the ground. And then they attach this massive chain to the stake and to the elephant's leg. This baby doesn't know better, and so it starts running. The chain pulls on it until it cuts into its hide, into its feet, into its legs. It keeps running and running because it doesn't know any better until you've got this red mess. Until it happens enough and enough that it knows not to pull against the chain. So that years later, when the circus rolls into town, now you've got this 12,000-pound beast. There's no stake. They take a little wooden stump, no chain. They take a little thread rope, and they tie it to the elephant's feet. And it doesn't move. It doesn't move. 12,000 pounds of elephant power. It doesn't move. Because it still bears in its memory the wounds of all its defeat. And it's almost like the scriptures are coming to you and saying, I know. I know sometimes you've been rubbed down to the bone and you've got the taste of defeat still in your mouth. And so you're sitting here with resurrection power held down by a thread. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power that is at work towards us who believe. Now, there's two things I have to caution you from. The one is that you take this and you run out of here and you go, that's it, I'm an elephant, right? I'm gonna, watch out, Satan, sin, world, I'm going to do this. I was, I was told something very helpful and that you need to know in this passage. Whenever Paul is talking in this passage, it's almost like he's a Texan. Now, we never say anything good about Texas here, but I'll, I'll do it once. It's like he's a Texan because in all the times he says you, it's actually y'all. It's always plural. So every utterance of you is not about you, it's about y'all. So when you read in 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you my prayers. He's saying, I don't cease to give thanks for y'all, remembering y'all in my prayers. In verse 17, when he says that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, it's I'm praying that God would give y'all the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In 18, when he says that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, it's that y'all may know the hope to which y'all have been called. What's the point? The point is that the resurrection power of Jesus is known to y'all. It's not that you run out of here on your own with resurrection power. It's in the context of community that this resurrection power is known. So, dear friend, when you cut yourself off from other believers and you live as a lone ranger Christian, when you've got that secret sin that no other breathing human being knows about, you are cutting yourself off from the resurrection power that is available to us all. You are in the most dangerous place you could possibly be. And it's in love for you that Paul is praying that you would know the resurrection power that is available towards us. So that on a Wednesday night when I gather with seven other brothers 
and I lay out my junk and they lay out their junk to me, it's in the context of that room that resurrection power can be known. And it's in the context of us who, what? Believe. That's the other thing I want to remind you. This resurrection power is at work towards us who work, strive. That's not what it says. It's towards us who believe. It's not that you're going to get out there and now you're going to work hard at this. You will. But it's that you, in the context of community, will fight to believe. So when a Wednesday night comes and seven of us are sitting in a room and I'm spilling my junk to these brothers and they're spilling their junk to me and we're confessing, it's that in that context, we're pushing one another towards believing. We're reminding each other, brother, the Father has adopted you. He set his affection on you from before time began. Before he hung the stars in the sky, he loved you. The Son has redeemed you. He shed his blood for your trespasses and the forgiveness of your sins. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, brother. You're not left as an orphan in this world. You have the Spirit. And brother, there is resurrection power for us. And in that context, we believe. And Paul is telling us, Seven Mile Road, I'm praying that you would know what is the hope to which you've been called, your status as God's inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power that is worked towards us who believe, namely the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, many things can be prayed and said, and now we ask that your own spirit would work among each heart, and minister to each person exactly where they need. Father, we thank you for the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love for the saints that the brothers and sisters here in this room at Seven Mile Road have. And now we ask ceaselessly that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know the hope to which we have been called, that we might know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance of the saints, and that we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power at work towards us who believe, that power which, according to your great might, was at work when it raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places above all earthly power, dominion, authority, and rule, and gave him the name that is above every name in this age and in the age to come, that we would know all of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.